man. They're making it. You're playing injured. Evangeline. Evangeline. All right, we should see it. It's fine. Our text for today is Second uh, huh? Timothy, chapter one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. As night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For the Spirit of God does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us, called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But now it has been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This gospel, I was an appointed herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am, yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me keep is a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. You know everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelis and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he's Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that you will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You will know very well in how many ways he has helped me in Ephesus. So we're on the final leg of our exploration of, uh, of the pastoral letters. And, uh, I don't know, each of them has been traditionally understood as rules and regulations and qualifications for serving as an elder. But as we've been discussing, like, they're really about how each person as a member of the body uh, thinks about how they, uh, I don't know, should act, think, believe, work together with brothers and sisters in Christ and how we should live together by putting Jesus at the core of and at the center of our community. So we've got a, at least we've been talking about a little different take on um, the letters than uh, normally uh, they're, they're presented. And I, you know, I guess the, the, the theme to first uh, Timothy that I really wanted to lean into is what grace and thankfulness, that expansive view of grace and that expansive sense of thankfulness for what Jesus has done for us. And, um, a theme that's kind of reflected in Titus and certainly in First Timothy, and you know, uh, but this one's different. You know, this the Second Timothy is is different from those other pastorals. It continues some of those same themes, but um, things have changed. And I'll I'll insert my standard uh, what opening and interpretive caveat that I always do that Paul pseudo Paul time when it was written we don't really know. Is, uh, is, is, I mean, there's debate about it. Some folks think it was written by Paul. Some folks think that it was written later. 
uh, you know that I don't think it really matters that much because it asks the wrong question because what's the right question here is what, what is it that God is trying to tell us about how we should think about living together in the context of the church. So whoever wrote it, under whatever conditions it was written, there's this storyline about how we should act and think and live as Christians. And the storyline is what Paul is old and he's in prison and he's near death. I mean, near death because he's getting older and he's near death because the Romans had uh, obviously threatened uh, his life. He kind of has the sense that he's at the end of the ministry and I don't know, let's be frank, things are not looking good. Times are dark. And Timothy, too, like, you know, you remember First Timothy, we just kind of finished it up, like, it's all about, you know, hey, don't let people spite you because you're young, and go out there and do a good job, and of course, you got to stand firm against the difficult doctrinal elements or whatever, but out of, this is written to a Timothy who is further along in his ministry, and those, it's not like those doctrinal questions have disappeared, but um, you know, there's the, the, the implied sense, and written into the letter as a sense of of suffering that kind of like Timothy is also in dark times that Timothy is struggling with things that are, I don't know, not just about like, what are the doctrines that the church has to figure out or how do we figure out how to include slaves or how do we figure out how to think about uh, widows or whatever the kind of question is. But you get this kind of sense in reading second Timothy that as Paul is writing, Paul's writing to Timothy who's discouraged, you know, who's kind of, Things aren't going like they imagined that they they might, and that that he's in dark times. And if you really kind of look at this uh, this letter, and you uh, do just kind of basic like uh, the rhetorical interpretation slash literary analysis, like even you would have done it back in the day in I don't know high school English class, for example, there are like four uh, words and four concepts that really jump out. Uh, of the especially the the first chapter so for for like and and the problem is it's harder to see it in english because in greek these four four words are all kind of clustered around one idea but if you were to look at that first chapter for a second if you have your bible in front of you what uh what is the first big concept that pops out to you that is being uh invoked repeatedly what's that Remember. remember remember The, the Greek word for uh, memory is memne, and it, that, that was also the first one that really jumped out to, to me. And, you know, you don't necessarily see it in the English translations, but there are seven uses of a memne word, of a word about remembering and memory just in this first chapter. And whatever you think this letter is about, you know, uh, uh, on the basis of sheer repetition or were you to throw together a fancy uh, PowerPoint word cloud or something like that. Like remember is the central theme that Paul is referring to here. Remember is the thing that Paul is pointing Timothy towards doing as a response to the context that he's in. And then there's these other clusters of words that don't appear quite as frequently as remember, but are pretty dominant themes. And those ones are gift, power, and light. Remember, gift, power, And light. And I think if you kind of see that, you see the direction and the shape of, of what this letter's about. This is a message for people who feel like they're in darkness. This is a message for people who feel like things are going wrong. And I don't, like Beth and I are not like international jet setters, but we did before as a as a kind of a graduation present. My 
parents got us tickets to uh, go to Rome. And so we went to Rome and like, we like visited the prison cell that Paul was said to have sat in. And like, he's literally in the dark. Like it, it is, a, it was a dark, dank place. And the, there was, uh, there's like only a teeny little portico of a window that's high up on the wall. And so, I don't know, Paul's writing this letter and, and you know, that even in the brightest days in Rome, the sun would barely get in there. And he's sitting there and writing the letter to people who are experiencing darkness. And what does Paul say about the darkness that has kind of surrounded them all? And what does Paul say? He says, remember, remember the gift, remember the power of the gift and remember the light. That's the message here. Like we know what it's like to experience dark times and it's not just COVID and it's not just our politics and it's not just the struggle of day-to-day lives. It's not just that our preachers are falling out of trees and shattering their wrists. And it's not just that we've dealt with, you know, all kinds of sickness and with aging parents and with death and with our own aging. And, you know, that our kids have experienced the kind of anxiety of going back to school. But like, we know we have a sense of, we also have been in places where we feel like we've encountered darkness and I don't know, remember, that's the thing that Paul is driving at. Remember that you have options when things are dark. And one of the things that this first chapter of the letter does, you know, it kind of throws some shade at the end at some people, but Paul's kind of trying to walk through the options that are presented to us when we face the darkness. What are those options? Like one option, I guess, uh, you can ignore the darkness you can ignore the stuff that is on the horizon that makes you fearful or anxious, but it kind of tends to stick around. You can um, wallow in it, can't you? Like you can say, oh, things are so terrible and I, I, I'm a wallower. Like I, I can't believe things have gone this bad. And I don't know, like if you think about it, there's a series of options that we might kind of characterize as rooted in surrender. The darkness is there and you know what it's going to be there. And then, you know, sometimes there's this other option you can like, decide to double down and fight the darkness and kind of throw yourself against it in an act of will on the basis of your own light. And I don't know, we'll call that the fight option. So like surrender or fight. And Paul is saying, and there's this beautiful little piece of Greek in here that makes this so clear that our, our response to the darkness is neither to surrender nor to fight. Those are not the options that he's laying out here for Timothy. I mean, don't surrender because even though like when you're in the darks and uh, in, in the depths of the darkness it would be silly to surrender why God's already won why would you ever surrender to a defeated enemy but like Paul's also saying don't fight because at least if we understand fighting to be like marshaling our own light to defeat the dark because the dark can be pretty strong and your light's not up to the task and by the way the light that you have is not your own light anyway light that is given to you by the Spirit of God. So don't surrender and don't fight on your own. What does Paul tell us to do? Remember. Remember the gift that you have been given in the darkness. In the darkness, see the light of Christ that has been given to you. You may suffer, but here's the beautiful line, but you suffer in power and you can stoke the fires of faith. Now, verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God in keeping with the promise of life, that it is in Christ Jesus. As we've talked about before, when Paul starts one of these letters, there's a lot of stuff loaded into it that is awfully relevant for interpreting it. And the basic thing that is relevant here is Paul does not say, although it sounds like Paul's saying this a lot, but he's not like, hey, I'm Paul, everybody. Here's my letter. Paul says, look, I'm a person who is an apostle for, a messenger for, 
who has a power and authority that is not of my own will. It's not about my own excellence. It's a product of God's will. And here's a classic Pauline shtick. What does he say? He's saying that he's making an argument that's kind of built into that that's not just about the opener, that Paul is saying that it is God's will that is the thing to deal with the death and the darkness on the horizon. And it is God's will that even sitting in this kind of dank, dim cell that Paul claims that gives him an authority and a power that is rooted in an act of God's choosing. And the Greek there is so beautiful. It's in keeping, uh, down from, or as you might say uh, in North Carolina, on account of, Paul is saying that he is given authority by God on account of the promise of life that is built in Jesus. And so he's claiming an authority that is not his own, but instead one that is about being sent even in a prison cell by the promise of life that is built in Jesus Christ. The whole thing is about saying something other than, hey, I'm Paul, I'm the guy, and listen to me. Instead, he's pointing towards and he's reflecting towards the light and the beauty that is Jesus Christ that is the basis for what he tells Timothy to do. And then look at verse 3. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Remember when we talked about that word for clear conscience a couple of weeks ago? Cathara uh, syndesii, which is something like cathara, same word as catharsis, and, uh, you know, purging something out, and then syndesii, like a unity of the whole person. So when the Greeks thought about conscience, they wouldn't have thought about it the way we did. Like, I don't know, we think about it like, uh, how are you able to sleep at night? Don't these kind of thoughts impinge on you? And their vision of conscience was... I don't know, much, much, much richer. It was that your whole person was oriented towards one thing so that everything that you thought and everything that you did was aligned with. And what he's saying here is that Paul's saying that because of the gift of Christ, he has been able to serve the kingdom by purging any other interests and having a unity of person, of purpose in person that is driven by the will of God that Paul says that like those who came before him, he's been able to uh, to, to, to be invested with by the power of Jesus, a sense of person and of per, uh, and, and, and a, and a, a purpose that are united. And so he's constantly reminding Tim, and remembering Timothy in prayer. And then verses four and five have like these three remember words. So I don't know, we're up to like six already. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your mother, uh, grandmother and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now also living in you. Recalling the things that Timothy has suffered over, Paul longs for that kind of connection and joy, and he is reminded of Timothy's sincere faith. And the word there is also uh, very much one of those words that, well, I don't know, the word there for sincere is anipocritu. It means like without hypocrisy, that he remembers that Timothy too, like the people who have come before him as a person who is called by God and shaped by God and who sees the fullness of the gift of God and is thankful for it and remember what God has done for him and remember the history and remember the past. And like, as you think about it over and over and over, Paul's kind of doing this move that at first it feels like is just kind of blowing smoke or bloviating or praising someone for their past, but he's kind of making this argument about remembering. So look at six. For this reason, that is as a result of the gift of faith, I remind you, another memne word, to fan into the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands, which comes from somewhere else. Over and over and over in those six verses, Paul is pointing out 
that the gift of faith comes from somewhere else, whether it be from God or from other people, and that because it comes from somewhere else that we are given a gift, and that when we remember that gift, that it transforms us and it makes us different. And the the metaphor here uh, could not be more beautiful. What do you do when you're confronted with the darkness? You can wallow, you can surrender, you can fight. I want you to think back to the darkness that is camping. I want you to think back to, I don't know, like maybe, depending on how old you are, 11, 12, 1, I don't know. The night has gone on for a while. And at first you built a really great fire. And that fire has, uh, and you attended to it, you know, because you wanted to cook and then you wanted to hang out. And, but the night's kind of going on and, you know, that fire is starting to die down because like ash is accumulating and there's unburnt bits of wood in it. But those pieces really haven't started on fire and it's kind of settled in. And so what do you do? You grab your best poking stick and you just give it a little stir. And all of a sudden it knocks off ash and I don't know, I just like kind of love the magic of all of a sudden that fire that, you know, just with a like little shift of the elements in it, the flame springs back to life. And in the midst of the darkness, all of a sudden everything's illuminated by the flames that jump from that fire. And the Greek word that is translated here as fan the flame, anazopyrene, literally means to up life the fire. But as the folks in this audience would have thought about it, they would have thought about that act of stirring the fire in the dark of night when other people had started uh, wandering out to bed and they would have recalled the little miracle that as soon as you stir the fire, there are those hot embers that were buried deep in it and the ash that is starting to kind of snuff out the flames would have been cleared away and the, uh, the, the, the combination of the heat and the oxygen pouring in as you poked up the fire will all of a sudden the fire as if by magic would spring to light and all of a sudden you could see everything around you. What a beautiful metaphor for what faith is here. Remember the gift. Those hot embers are already buried deep in the fire. They're already there. They're already waiting. The question is not to douse the fire, surrender or wallow. The question is not to start a new fire. The question is to stir up what God has already provided to you. That is the grace and the beauty and the gift and the power of the Holy Spirit in us, that those embers are there and they may have started to wane, but they can leap back to life and that the hot stuff is already there in the fire pit and all you need to do is give it a little poke. That's how Christians think about the darkness. And if you think about it that way, I want you to make, look at verse 7 and do a, nerdy, a little nerdy rhetorical analysis with me, I swear, to, it'll, be, it'll be useful. For the Spirit of God does not make us timid, Okay, so there's an opposition here, timidity verse, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. And before the, I did the Greek on it, for the life of me, I could not understand how timidity and then these three things could all be opposites, could all be counterpoints. But think about the fire in the background, and I did a little bit of work on this word timid, and gosh, it's really interesting. Like, when I think of timid, I think of something like, I don't, being a wallflower, it's like me in a middle school dance, you know? Well, I'm a wallflower, I'm like kind of back against the bleachers and hoping no one asks me, but kind of hoping someone asks me. And it's not that kind of timidity. And in fact, other translations out there may have it as cowardly. 
But it's the, the Greeks had, you know, we've, I'm sure we've got words that are richer than theirs. So there's got to be people preaching in Greek that talk about English. I don't know, maybe not. But point being, this word is really, really, really rich because the Greeks thought a lot about states of mind. And they had a lot of words about states of mind. And the word here for timidity is called dahlia. And it's not just that you're, it's not just cowardice, it's not just timidity, it's like reticence. And it kind of captures, a long time ago we talked about this ancient idea that if you were sick, that you deserved it. And that folks in the ancient world would have thought that when bad things happened to you, that it was something that you were kind of, it was supposed to be that way. And so Dahlia here is not just timidity, it's not just reticence, it's kind of like resignation. It's like the bad thing happened, the bad thing should have happened, and I'm okay with the bad thing happening, and, you know, maybe I'm scared and maybe I'm suffering, but it's kind of my lot in life, and so, I don't know, I couldn't think about the best way to translate it, and it just hit me like a, like a shot. The modern equivalent of Dahlia is, it is what it is. Isn't that what we mean when we say it is what it is? We say it just kind of, look, this is the way things are, we can't change it. And it's not quite like we deserve it, but there's nothing that we can really do to meaningfully change it. So it's best for us to kind of resign to and accept it. So when you hear dahlia, timidity there, think it is what it is. It's not quite cowardice, but it is a kind of resignation. And that resignation is actually diametrically opposed to power and love and self-discipline. Think about that for a minute. That's amazing to me. It's amazing to me that what we're... What we're supposed to do when the darkness is there is say, look, it is what it is. And that is the opposite of the vision of power that the scripture has. When the scripture says that there is power, the Greek word there, it's one we've talked about before, is dunamis. It means not just physical force or something. It means the ability to make things happen. That ember that is deep in you that may not quite yet be stirred up is a a refutation of the idea that it is what it is because by the power of God and in the grace of God and with the strength of God, the spirit can change things. It can move. It is what it is, but it is what it is is not only the description of the situation that we've been given because God can move and change things. And it's the same with, with, with love. Like it is what it is says, maybe I should draw a little bit of a boundary and not care too much because the situation, well, it is what it is. But instead, the Christian, the person who believes that that ember is deep within them, that person risks the possibility of caring unconditionally, of loving unconditionally, because if it is what it is, is one thing, it's what? It's a condition on our amount of investment or care that we put in some, someone or something. And instead, the ember that is deep within us, the ember that is deep within the fire, demands that because of the power of the Spirit that we love. So instead of resigning to it, we give unconditionally. And that's the same the thing with this kind of self-discipline. Man, this is a great one. The Greek word for that is sophrosune. And it's not like I didn't eat that, uh, you know, last bag of licorice. Although, by the way, I did eat the last bag of black licorice in the house, and I went through like $80 of black licorice on keto. That's not self-discipline, though. (laughs) That is, the Greek word sophrosune is something like seeing and going where you're able to go. It means something like, like, uh, everyone talks about the Greeks being great touters of the virtue of moderation. And this is one of their words for moderation. This is one of those words that means that you look and see what you can do given the constraints. And like, 
that's a contrast worth meditating on to me. Like resignation, it is what it is, is one vision of how we respond to the darkness. But what God asks us to do is to see the embers that are deep within us and to realize that by the Spirit and in God's power that things can get done and that instead of resigning that we can commit and instead of guarding that we can give and against that resignation that says that there is nothing that you can do or against the delusion that says you can snap your fingers and on your own make it right, the point that Paul is making to Timothy and to us is that the Spirit empowers us to see in faith the role that we can play in making things different so don't resign, remember. Don't resign, remember. Don't be timid, trust. Don't be guarded, give. Don't be deluded or desperate, but see what God is positioned to do and remember. Remember that you are a child and an inheritor of the kingdom of a king who has defeated death. Remember that the infinite, all-powerful God emptied that God self of Godhood for you. Remember that the same God that parted the Red Sea and made water spring from a rock and raised the dead and healed the sick and created the universe out of nothing but that God's own intention loves you and that the God who was born and died and rose to save you, the God who has given you existence as a gift, that God is there for you. Remember. And let that ember stir in the fires of your soul. And instead of resigning or saying it is what it is, understand that you are empowered to change, to love, and to see the places where God has positioned you to make an impact. And all of a sudden, verse 8 makes a heck of a lot more sense. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or about me as prisoner. Join with me in suffering with the gospel by the power of God. Man. We forget We forget so many times that the word suffering doesn't just mean to experience something bad. That the way that they would have thought about it is that, yes, suffering often entailed things that were bad, but it was a way of describing the things that we experienced. The the idea for suffering for them, for us, it's primarily about focusing on the bad for the Greeks and for the folks in this audience, the that, that read this letter, the idea of suffering would have been something like something that was imposed on you. And the specific word for it here, suffering, in the first part of the sentence is epeskunomai, which means something like to be dishonored or be disgraced. And here's what the whole shame thing is about. It would have been the word that would have, you would have used to talk about how a defeated people thought about itself. I don't know, as you're wandering away from the front lines defeated in battle and you think we just got beat and that's terrible and we can't really do anything about it and that says something about us. But suffering is not just a description of what's bad, it's a description of what is a reality that is not of our own choosing. And the point that Paul is trying to make here (coughs) is that the things that are dark in reality are not the whole of reality. They are not the only thing that you suffer because there are embers in that fire that are waiting to be lit up. And it's not a question of an act of your will. It's a question of remembering the gift. It's a question of looking into the fire and seeing that there are embers there that are yet to be stirred up and saying that that too defines the reality of the darkness and therefore that it is reversible because by the simple movement of the gift of the spirit that has been given to us and our our remembering it and our acting on the basis of that memory, well, gosh, things might then change. Verse 9, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, 
but because of His own purpose and grace. The grace given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, which has now been revealed to us through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality and light through the gospel. It has been given. It has been revealed. And remember that the word for revealed is not just like told or not just like I let you find out something that you do, didn't do before. The word for revealed literally means it's so beautiful to come in to the light. This is a message for people who are in the darkness and are trying to figure out whether or not they can surrender, whether or not they can fight. And you know what? They don't feel like they can ignore or surrender to the darkness because they feel like they can't bear it anymore. And they don't feel like they can simply suffer the darkness because it feels like it's too much. And they don't know if they can stand up and fight the darkness because it feels like it's too daunting. And what Paul says to them and what Paul says to Timothy, and I think what Paul says to himself, it is, if it is Paul sitting inside that damp and that dark cell, is listen, set the spirit free to light that fire back up. Remember what you have been given. Remember the gift that is in God. Remember that it, once it is stirred up, remember that once it is brought to the front of our mind, remember that once we face it at a choice point that we can resign or we can retreat or we can redouble our efforts or we can simply remember our calling. And our calling is something that we suffer just as much as something that we suffer as compared to the bad things. It has been given to us. It is outside of us. It is not reducible to us or our will, but there is a baseline reality to the universe that is God's grace, that is unchangeable, that is beyond our mind, that is something that is also an element of the world. And the point is for us to see it too, not just to see the things that we are pessimistic about or that we are sad about, not only to see the darkness, but to see the character of that small ember and to stir it and to reject the shame and the resignation and the sadness and the sense of disempowerment that happens when we look in the darkness and instead to have the light come in and to light us up. And when it lights us up, it lights others up. And that's the beautiful thing about the metaphor of fire. Paul's going to go through the end of this chapter and talk about how some people had his back and other people didn't. But what's he really talking about? What he's talking about is that when you face the darkness, there's a choice point and you can resign or you can fight or you can stir the fire. And in stirring the fire, you can not only bring light to those around you, but that that, that fire is catching. And when it catches, it transforms the world. And that's the point is to remember not to resign, not to give up, but to stir the fire so that we might all be lit up once again and in God's name and by God's power and because of who God is change the world and ourselves. Amen. Talk, discussion, objection.